Happy summer, pivoters. Hey, the Pivot Me team, we're taking a handful of weeks off to spend a little more time with our family and friends. We're talking about time at the lake, paddleboarding, mountain biking, and living our best lives. But hey, good news. We are working on some amazing new episodes, and we have some rock star guests lined up, which we will be releasing very soon. Until then, we wanted to bring back a few of our favorite episodes. Enjoy. Cameron Harold is a top business consultant, best-selling author of multiple books, and a world-renowned speaker. He's the driving force behind hundreds of companies' exponential growth, and he's directly influenced numerous businesses through his expertise. He's the founder of COO Alliance, author of Double Double, Leading Suck, Vivid Vision, Free PR, The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, and no doubt many more in the future. He's also the mastermind behind 1-800-GOT-JUNKS, Amazing Growth as their COO. Today, he's the advisor to several large companies, including a big four wireless carrier and a monarchy. Welcome to Pivot Me, Cameron. Hey, April. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. So I think what's on everyone's mind, uh, Cameron, is how does one become the advisor to a monarchy? Like, is that a right place, right time thing? Is it a LinkedIn post? I, I'm just curious about that piece. A little bit of both. It's it's right time, right place by design, though. So something I noticed years ago was I, I ended up flying in business class one day and then I met this business guy and I ended up coaching him. I'm like, that was random. Like, and then I thought about it. I'm like, no, everyone sitting in business class is usually running a company or a senior executive. And most of the people sitting in economy aren't. And I realized that the, the, the return on investment of paying to be sitting in business versus paying to be sitting in economy if I chatted with people randomly, not the whole flight, but just got to know them, I would get a return on investment. So I've never flown economy in the last 10 years. I only sit in business class or first. So I was on a flight from Vancouver to Scottsdale. I have a home in each city. And I was sitting beside this woman and I said, so um, what do you do? And she goes, well, she goes, I'm, a, I'm the second in command for a large group of companies um, that's owned by we could call it, she goes, we could call it a sovereign wealth fund. And I'm like, okay, that's huge. And she goes, how about you? And I said, I'm, I've worked with entrepreneurial companies all over the world. I've written a bunch of books. And um, she said, wait a second. She goes, did you just say 1-800 got junk? And I said, yeah. And she goes, is your name Cameron? And I said, yeah. She goes, I heard about you the other day up in Whistler. She goes, is one of your books called Double Double? And I said, yes. And she goes, well, we should talk. So we started talking a little bit more. Turns out she's the second in command to the monarchy, the, the family that owns the company of Qatar. So Q-A-T-A-R mm -hmm. is this, is an owned, it's an absolute monarchy. They own everything. So they mm -hmm. own, so she wanted me to come over and coach them. And I didn't really want to go over to the Middle East because it's a long way. I've been over before and I didn't really want to have to fly. So I doubled my daily rates and then said, you know, if you want to pay me, um, and it was a hundred grand for three days. So I said, if you want to pay me a hundred grand, fly me over first class, pay my hotels, pay my food. I'll do it. And she said, okay. She goes, can we wire you 50% next week? And then we'll pay you the rest of the day before you come. And I'm like, shit, I should have doubled it again. Like, <laughs> Too there's, low. there's just so much money over there. It's obscene. Yeah. And uh, anyway, that's, that's how it started. So yeah, I went over and did some work with them over there. Wow. And so was it like business coaching? Is it, uh, yeah, I, was, I was working with them on, in, the, in that case, I was working with them on core values, culture, and some of the people systems. Mm -hmm. Um, and really getting them to think about across all their businesses, uh, some of the North American systems on on people and culture and and um, kind of aligning people with a greater purpose instead of just saying you have to do this. 
Yeah. And then Sprint was the same thing. I was sitting on a, on a flight uh, from Chicago to Miami, and I was sitting beside this massive entrepreneur, and we were sitting talking, and I diagnosed him as having ADD, bipolar, and being on the spectrum for Tourette's. And he kind of looked at me and goes, how do you know that about me? And I said, I just know entrepreneurs better than anyone on the planet. And I started drawing these diagrams. Turns out he was just getting ready to sell his first company for just over a billion dollars to spread to um, SoftBank. And it was Marcelo Claret who ended up being worth over a billion dollars and then being appointed the CEO of Sprint. He turned around Sprint. So that's when I coached him and his second command for 18 months. And he's now the CEO of WeWork trying to turn around WeWork. Wow. So you weren't kidding about where you sit on the plane really mattered. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, I, I could go on and on about the number of speaking events mm-hmm. I've landed or people that have bought 400 copies of Meeting Suck or just from sitting in business. No, I'm reminded of a Bob Hope quote that says, um, of course, I was at the right place at the right time. I put myself there. Yeah. Um, my, dad, my dad used to say, you got to be good to be lucky and lucky to be good. Mm, that's good. That's good. I like it. You know, one thing. Um, so kind of just taking it in a different direction. I'm curious on this. So when when you're sitting next to the person um, from the monarchy and it's not something you've done before, right? So you have a framework that works for businesses, but was there at all like a hesitation? I, I love kind of pulling on the thread of, okay, you just did something completely different than you had. Was there any hesitation about, okay, I have this framework, will it still apply for a country? Yeah, see, I don't apply it as a framework. And, okay. and it's why I will never try to template myself and replicate myself. Like I don't want to have a group of people coaching Cameron systems or mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's very much an art of okay. understanding and it's why I can charge what I charge, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very much an art on me understanding businesses, understanding the idiosyncrasies of the entrepreneurs and being very careful with who I say yes to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't work with government. I don't work with boring blue collar manufacturing I have to be in a zone. My criteria is young, fun, entrepreneurial, high viral, high growth, pre-public. The monarchy was a one-off opportunity. And then Sprint, I just became really, really good friends with this CEO and his wife. I've stayed at both their homes in Kansas City and Miami. I just became good friends with them. Mm -hmm. And that led into me doing some coaching with the CEO and then also a year and a half coaching his second in command. But Mm -hmm. most of my clients would be probably in the the five to $200 million range. Okay. Um, is that common thing that you become friends with your clients? I've noticed that as kind of a theme. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't want. Embedded. I don't want to coach somebody that I can't be friends with because I'm very much an open. Like the way I'm talking to you now is the way I talk on stage. It's the way I talked with Marcelo. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm just me, and I don't really. In fact, I've got a bracelet that I wear that says authentic. I just don't. So I have to be friends with them because they're going to get to know me right away anyway. Mm-hmm. I want to get to know them. Like I actually want to. I'm kind of doing this for fun and I get paid for it, which is kind of sure. cool. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people from the coaching world will say, no, you can't be there. If you're going to be the coach, you can't be their friend. So I love that that's a deviation of I'm spending a lot of time with these people. I get real and vulnerable. I got to like them. I'm also less of a coach and more of a mentor. Mm, okay. If you think about the consulting kind of spectrum, you've got on the one end coaching where you use the Socratic method to ask a lot of questions to get them to figure out for themselves. Sure. I'm like a therapist. You know, a therapist can't be friends with their client. But then on the other end, you've got the consultant who you're going to hire to do work for you. I kind of sit in the middle. And I think more as the mentor, you you can be good friends with your mentor, right? Yeah. The mentor is going to call you on your shit, but they're also going to be there to support you and help you and hold your hand. And they're going to be there for you. So I'm very much that kind of trusted advisor mm-hmm. who's, been, who's been there before them. But I'm, I don't need to keep an unbiased approach to it. I love it. 
right. thing that was really fascinating to me is that you were you were groomed as an entrepreneur. And I that's that's again a little bit of a deviation for me because most of the entrepreneurs I talked to weren't groomed. They were groomed to be really, really good employees. Um, right. and so I love that you were groomed, but I'm curious, talk through what that was, like how you were specifically groomed to be an entrepreneur. Well, it's funny. I, I hired um, Elon Musk's brother, Kimball, in 1993. And I remember him telling me that he was told in his business class at Queens University that he was being groomed as a middle manager at a corporation. And, and <laughs> fucking kill, he's like, ah, get me out of here. And he really wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I gave him his first entrepreneurial venture. I hired him as a franchisee for College Pro Painters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also hired his cousin who built Solar City. But the. Um, so the grooming wasn't in the school system. In fact, far from it. The school system mm-hmm. nearly destroyed me. My father and mother groomed the three of us kids to be entrepreneurs. Mm, okay. Both, both of my grandfathers, one, one said my grandmother and grandfather were an entrepreneur. They owned their own resort together. My other grandfather was um, the CEO of a big pharmaceutical company. So, so we only ever knew business in our family. And then my dad ran his own company for years and, and they groomed us. So the, the three, my brother and my sister and myself, have all owned our own companies for between 15 and 25 years today. Wow. That's all we've ever done. I had my first company when I was 21. I had 12 employees when I was 21. So for three years in university, I had a business while I was in university. I graduated with no debt, bought a house and paid my own way through school. But we were set up that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what my dad taught us, I think the most about being an entrepreneur was you control your time. It's not about money. And he showed us at a very, very early age that the biggest benefit of being an entrepreneur was you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people today, unfortunately, are trying to become entrepreneurs to make the money. Mm-hmm. And they're missing, they're missing the point. The money will be there. Mm-hmm. But, if, but if you don't enjoy the free time along the way, you've missed the entire journey. So I don't work nights and I don't work weekends and I very rarely work Fridays. This is a pretty rare, I've got a half day today, but I pretty, cause I took the last two and a half weeks off, but I'm very, very careful with my time. Mm -hmm. It is the most precious non-renewable resource, right? When it's also, it's also like, we're all going to die. Like none of this actually matters. Like we may as well have some fun along the way. I imagine that plays into the kind of people that you pick to work with as well. Yeah. Like I, I mentioned to you before we started that I was in Lake Tahoe and um, I hung out with um, Tony Lilios, who is a, a great entrepreneur, lives in Incline. And But for me to meet up with him in coffee, I had to wait for him to get off of his hoverboarding. He was out on the, the, the <laughs> floor, like that surfing foil out on Lake Tahoe. Yeah. And like, how often do you do that? He's like, I don't know, five days a week. And he's like a successful entrepreneur. But the most important thing for him is that being out, spending time with his kids or his hobbies, right? I think mo- yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs miss that. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. Um, there's so many things that pull us into believing the reverse model, right? And we forget to put those big rocks in first and just, you know, to use the Stephen Covey concept, you end up filling up your base with the sand. Um, yeah, it makes no point, like no sense. You got to work on the important things versus the urgent things. You got to, as Jim Collins also said, work on the, um, the critical few things versus mm-hmm. the important many. Yeah. Yeah. And the critical few don't usually bark the loudest. That's the trick is that they're hard to hear because all the other things are barking so loud that we forget to go, oh, yeah, that's right. These things actually don't really matter. It's these things over here that sit quietly in the corner that if you don't address them is a huge lost opportunity. Yeah, I'll give you a system that I learned years ago from, strangely enough, from Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we used it at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, so I've learned it 20 years ago now. The basic idea is at the end of every day, think about the five biggest things you need to do tomorrow. 
and make a list of those five big things you need to get done, put them in order of impact one through five, and then first thing in the morning, start working on item one. Mm-hmm. Then work on item two, work on item three, et cetera. And don't get into your email and the rest of your business until you get your five critical things done. Yeah. So I then told that story to a, to a group of entrepreneurs at EO one time. And one of them literally created an app called Commit to Three. Because I said, I, oh, yeah. I know I don't, that. Well, that was based on me telling the story. I said, I don't like five, I like three. So he created an app called Commit to Three. So that's what I now use as my daily accountability for me to figure out what's important. So like, here's my daily top three right there. That's amazing. I'm familiar with that app. Yeah, it's great. And it's so simple because you have an accountability partner and whoever sets their goals first, it kind of nudges you to go, oh shit, I should stop working on the busy work. And I may as well work on those, as you called it, the things hiding in the corner. So um, I have to tell you, I do the same thing. And here's my three things right here. There you go. This is, I follow this uh, checklist every single day for the same way. So I'm right there with you, Cameron. One thing I want to talk about. So we were talking about the entrepreneurs and, and being groomed as one. I, I saw your, I think it was a TED talk on um, raising your kids to be an entrepreneur. And I want to talk about that because I think that people think about that in the theoretical, but what does that actually look like raising your kids to be an entrepreneur? So I've, I have two girls, I have a seven and nine year old, and they very much have the entrepreneur flair. But then when you actually try to facilitate that in your kids, what does it look like? So it started out as lemonade stands for us. And now it's evolved, Cameron, into them taking, dragging a table out to our front yard and taking the toys, usually the ones that I bought most recently for like 30 bucks and sticking $3 price tags on it, trying to sell them to, you know, random strangers in our neighborhood. I find myself in a situation where I'm going, okay, do I support their entrepreneur endeavors, but also be present so they don't, you know get kidnapped or something terrible like that. What does it actually look like to encourage entrepreneurism in, in kids? Yeah, you just touched on it. And it's my biggest pet peeve with today's set of parents who are trying to encourage entrepreneurship is if you want your kid to run the lemonade stand, go back in your house and do your own freaking hobby, mm-hmm. your own life, do your own shit, even if you have to just sit and play Candy Crush all day, but let your kids sit out at the end of your driveway and sell lemonade and okay. come back in every half hour go, nobody's buying. Coach them from inside. Let them go back mm-hmm. out. But you do your kid no service by standing out behind them, waving people in, because then the kids, like, run your own damn lemonade stand. Sure, sure. So what I, what my lessons from all, so in my TEDx talk that I did 10 or 11 years ago, it's still on the main TED.com website, um, but Raising Entrepreneurial Kids, I learned from every business venture that I ever had because I was doing it. But what, the way I learned was my dad would sit down and say, how did it go? Mm-hmm. What did you learn? So I'd be like, well, I'll give you an example. I was selling license plate protectors. They would slip in behind the license plate to hold the license plate straight. Now we get them from the car dealer. But back in those days, we didn't have them. So everybody's license mm-hmm. plates were all crinkled up from parking into whatever. So I remember knocking on this door and the guy said, I don't need one. And I said, well, I saw your car out front is all crinkled this will keep it straight. And he looked at me and smiled and he said, well, I don't need two. And I said, well, you've got a license plate on the front of your car and a license plate on the back and you've got your wife's car. So really you need four. And he starts laughing. He goes, I'll tell you what, how about I take one and in two weeks you can come back. And I said, let's do this. I'll put one on your car right now and I'll come back in one week. And if it's still straight, you buy the other three. And he starts laughing and he goes, okay. Great negotiation. I learned how to negotiate. Yeah, I learned how to kind of find a middle ground. I learned how to move the deadline up. But my dad made me at 12 or 11 years old think about those lessons. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the way you raise your kids as entrepreneurs is let them do – because the, 
your kid's not going to be selling stuffed animals for the rest of their lives. But if they are, maybe they'll become like a big stuff, you know, maybe they'll understand. Right. Mm-hmm. But then my dad would, would all of a sudden with my lemonade stand, if it was every weekend, he would start charging me for the, for the Kool-Aid. He would charge me for the sugar. He would rent me the table. I'd have mm-hmm. to pay him. So, so I'm like, wait, you didn't rent me last time. He goes, yeah, well, last time was your first time. Now you need to understand costs of goods sold. So I come sure. back, I, go, I made five bucks. And he go, well, the sugar costs 30 cents. The Kool-Aid costs 20 cents. The table, I'm like, and I realized it would be gone, but I learned. Mm-hmm. He didn't ever stand outside. Mm. I went in and made the Kool-Aid. I spilled it over the counter. I cleaned it up. I brought it outside. I made the shitty little sign. Mm-hmm. And then I go, nobody's buying. He go, well, what's your sign look like? And he'd come out, he goes, do you think that's the best you can do? I'm like, no. So then I'd go back and I'd make a better sign. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, moms are sitting in the garage with their kid for six days, assembling some cool lemonade stand they bought on Amazon. Like, yeah. You're, you're not doing anything. Yeah. Makes total sense. Makes total so, sense. So the people, people learn for, there's four different parts of the life cycle of learning. The first is the abstract conceptualization. You're going to learn the concept. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to learn by active experimentation. That's the role play. So what's a lemonade stand? How does it work? You talk to your kid about that. They go, okay, I get it. Let's look online. Okay. What, what might you say when a customer comes? How do mm-hmm. you, so that's the active experimentation. Let's practice in the house. Then concrete experiences, let them go out and do it. Mm-hmm. And then reflective observation is when they come back in and you talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. But you need to let your kids go through, and as adults, you need to go through those four parts of the cycle and then continually loop the learning. Yeah, makes complete sense. And I think, especially in today's day and age, we do, it's easy to hop in and do it for them, right? It's so easy. It's almost more work in some regards to let them just do it. Like, let them go out and fail and get up again. It's almost more work. I was talking to a CEO about this the other day, and I said, you know, when was the last time you rode shotgun with one of your sales guys? He goes, oh, I went out six weeks ago. We were seven minutes into the call. He was screwing it up. So I took it over. I'm like, dude, you missed the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like, Let him screw up the entire one hour call. Take notes, go to a second call. Let him screw that one up too. Then talk to him after you've watched two full one hour calls and he screwed up seven times. Like, but to take it over, he doesn't learn. Mm-hmm. And, and you've missed all the other things he's screwing up that when you're not there, he's going to keep screwing up. Yeah. So, so leadership at times is like zipping it keeping our, our eyes open and then getting the learner to say, all right, we just did a sales call. What went well? What didn't go well? What can mm-hmm. you do better next time? Okay. And here's what I saw, right? And that's the same with growing your kids. That's really good language. The learner. I like that. Instead of saying the sales rep that he was training, it's the learner because that's yeah, the position. Every, yeah. in every coaching relationship, right? You've got the mentor and the learner or the mentor and the mentee. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. Would you like to see the behind the scenes footage of the Pivot Me interviews? We have launched April Garcia Pivot Me on YouTube. Take 10 seconds now and go to YouTube and enter April Garcia Pivot Me or enter it directly at youtube.com backslash April Garcia Pivot Me. You can see all the guests interview with Jay Abraham, Sharon Lecter, Cameron Harold, John Lee Dumas. We are releasing new videos every Tuesday. Go ahead and stream with us. Hop on and join us. And please support us by giving that thumbs up and subscribing. It really does matter. And you are going to love these videos. Thanks for joining Pivot Me on YouTube. One of the things we talk about a lot in Pivot Me is 
sort of on your trajectory here, so where you are today, that usually there is a pivot point, if not many. So in EO language, a lot of times we refer to them as inflection points, but usually in business, sometimes it's personal where everything changed for us. Like sometimes it's, I was in the corporate world and then I became yeah. an entrepreneur. Do you have, can you tell us about a time where you had this pivotal moment where everything changed or you're like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing or this is not what I'm supposed to be doing? Yeah, I'd say I have three or four and I'll make them short. The first one was getting involved with college pro painters when I was in university. I bought a franchise and I started running a house painting business at 21 years old. That got me deep into entrepreneurship very quickly. Probably one of the best executive learning programs in the world, right up there with Xerox and Procter and Gamble. It was spectacular. Really, really, because every year we hired 800 university students to be franchisees. They then hired 8,000 students to be painters. And in four months, we'd do 64 million in house painting and then we would do it again. And then I went on to the head office team. I was in the top 30 people coaching and training and recruiting franchisees. So for me, it was a seven-year amazing journey. The second one was getting involved in the entrepreneurs organization. So that was when I was building out a chain of auto body shops. In the U.S., it's called Gerber Auto Collision. In Canada, it was Boyd Auto Body. I was mm-hmm. second in command there, and we took that company public. And I left there. And in, in that time, I was involved in the entrepreneurs organization, meeting with all these other really smart under-40 entrepreneurs. And that was my first mastermind. It was when I learned about vulnerability and I didn't have to be strong at everything. So that got me into the whole mastermind world. 1-800-GOT-JUNK for sure, um, mm-hmm. you know, because we built such a massive brand and got all the PR that we got. We landed 5,200 stories in six years. So being on Oprah, like it, that was a real kind of massive, I guess, inflection point. And then lastly was meeting a guy named um, Yannick Silver slash Joe Polish, who really those two introduced me to a massive, massive world of connectors and influencers. And um, yeah. It's interesting how we can have these experiences, have the conversation or have the meeting with someone and it sends us on a totally different trajectory, but we've got to be open to it, right? The new key is once you know that concept is there, how do you put yourself into those situations Mm -hmm. to then launch? So like I'm in, I'm involved in four mastermind groups a year right now. Mm -hmm. I pay $25,000 a year to go to be in the genius network. Mm-hmm. I pay $10,000 every year to go to the main TED conference. I've gone for nine years. Um, I've, been, I've gone to five baby bathwater events. I've gone to seven years of strategic coach. I've gone to war room. I've gone to, five, uh, you know, like I'm plugged in. Mm-hmm. And every time I invest in myself by going to, I go to Abundance 360. Every time I go to one of those events, my trajectory changes. In retrospect, you might go, oh, your trajectory changed because you were there. It's like, no, I went there on purpose. I went there to change my trajectory. Because mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't like groups. I'm really nervous in groups. Mm, okay. I mean, yeah, I would rather stand on a stage of a thousand people than go to a networking group. And yet you do it all the time. Because I know that every time I put myself there, I get a 10 to a 100x return. Wow. Like by I, when I invest twenty five thousand in the Genius Network, I easily get two hundred fifty thousand dollars either in new business or or ideas. Easy. When you go to those events, do you have a really clear goal on? Okay, I'm going to this event, and yeah. my intention is to get X amount of business or make X amount of connections. I go in with three. I go in with three things. Who are the three new people I want to meet? Who are the three current people that I know that I want to spend time with? And mm-hmm. what are the three needs, like areas that I want to get better at that I can enter into a conversation? So like right now I'm working on building out an online model. So I'm talking to lots of people about online models, continuity programs. So I go into those three intentions, who knew, who current, and what can I learn about? Yeah. 
You know, you mentioned uh, in there when you're talking about the events that you're going to um, vulnerability. And I remember watching a talk that you did uh, recently. Well, no, you did the talk probably a while ago, but I saw it recently. And it was, hey, I've, I've got this event. And I think it was a group of COOs. And one guy wasn't showing up to the conference because he had imposter syndrome. And we talk about imposter syndrome a lot on the show. So people are very familiar with it. And I love that you said, okay, who else is struggling with it? Who else is struggling with, am I ready for this role? Do Am I worthy to be in this room? I love that you tackled that. Um, mm. and talking about embracing vulnerability. And this is something that um, we've talked about in the past. How do you balance, I mean, you probably know where I'm going with this. How 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 vulnerable should a leader be? Because people want to follow the guy with the plan, right? So you got to be the guy with the plan. But then how much vulnerability do you bring to the table that with your team? And so that there's trust and there's they're identifying with your humanness, but they also have confidence in your ability to lead and have the plan. Yeah. So the leader has to be strong on the vision, but doesn't have to be strong on how to get there. Mm, okay. when, you, when you explain, if you give that to your team, though, just like that, then they think you might be weak. So mm-hmm. you give it to them in an analogy, they see the strength in it. So for me, the analogy is this. I'm a homeowner. I want to build a home. I know what I want my home to look like. I know how I want it to feel. I know what the kitchen needs to look like. But I don't know how, nor do I want to learn how to do the electrical, the plumbing, put up walls and build a foundation and put in the roof. Sure. I don't want to learn it. I don't know how to do it, but I want to hire a bunch of really smart people who know how to make my vision come true. Mm -hmm. The leaders that are the most scary are the ones that have no idea where they're going and they're running around barking orders and nobody knows what we're building. It's like, Mm -hmm. are are we building a house? Are we building a tree fort? Are we are we just practicing cart construction? Like, what the hell are we doing here? Sure. I don't know. We're And they're always flitting around. So that's the scarier part. So I think you can be vulnerable with, I don't know how to do this, as long as you're very, very clear on where you're going and what it looks like and how you're going to get there. So that's why I created that concept of the vivid vision, mm-hmm. that four or five page written document describing the future of your company. I covered in three of my books. And if you can describe what your company looks like, acts like, and feels like three years from today... That gives your team a lot of confidence that, yeah, you're not supposed to know how to do all of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to delegate everything except genius. So I love the I love the concept of the vivid vision. And can you expand on that a little bit? And also how often you're communicating that to your team? Sure. So the idea of the vivid vision is based on science of um, visualization that athletes use, where they visualize themselves performing the event. Or like a homeowner who can see what the home will look like, but the contractor understands the vision well enough to create the plans mm-hmm. and then hand the plans to the employees and the employees can build the home without ever talking to the homeowner. Mm-hmm. The entrepreneur usually has a vision of what they want their company to look like. So the basic idea is to lean out into the future three years out. So let's say you go December 31st, three years from today, and you're looking at almost as if you're walking around your company, virtual and in person. You describe the meetings, maybe three or four bullet points. You mm-hmm. describe the leadership team, maybe three or four bullet points. You describe what your customers are saying about you, what the media is writing about you, what your suppliers say about you. You describe IT and finance and engineering and operations and sales. You describe your core values and the culture. And you describe it without knowing how it happened. Mm-hmm. But you describe your company as if it's this living, breathing organism three years from today. That ends up becoming a, a four or five page rough document 
that you hand to a copywriter mm-hmm. and the copywriter can polish it and make it pop off the page. Sure. Then you add some graphic design elements to it. So it looks and feels like your brand. It becomes a four or five, six page maximum PDF mm-hmm. that you hand to every employee. And then you walk all the employees through it and get them reading it and thinking about what sentence are they most inspired about making come true. And then over time you build the plans to make it unfold. What I like doing is having every customer, every supplier, um, all of my employees read it every quarter. So I get Yeah, that way we're always thinking about the future, but executing on today. And when you communicate that, I imagine uh, if you start to get out of alignment with that, you probably got a few people that will remind you, hey, I thought this is where we were going. Yeah, you'll also get a few people that will go, I don't like what the future looks like. I'm Mm going to leave. Perfect. It's the right time to go because that is what we're building. Yeah. And then everybody else all of a sudden goes, oh, now I understand why we're doing this project. Or now I understand why you're so obsessed about core values. Or now I understand where this strategically fits. Like they see the bigger picture for mm-hmm. all of the stuff that we're doing. And it becomes like a home that gets built up from the ground up. Sure. You get the buy-in, you know, and it's interesting because at, at this size business that we typically deal with, people have multiple, they're wearing multiple hats. They're really focused on just the day to day. And sometimes it's hard to schedule, you know, offsite meetings and really get clarity on where you're going. Cause you're so busy with the day to day. And it's just a, it's a reminder of, um, that can be the kiss of death. You you can be so busy that you run yourself right out of business when well, you don't have a clear vision. A lot of these entrepreneurial companies, you know, when you're small, when you're like the 30 to, to 60, 70 employees, you can get very distracted by stuff that seems important or seems urgent. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like installing the cabinets in your kitchen before the electrical and the plumbing and walls have been put up. Sure. Like, sure. Anyway, like, we'll get to the yeah. worst stove, but let's get the foundation built right? Let's get the walls put up. Let's get the electrical and plumbing put in. And we always want to look at the kitchen, but we're not ready to get to the kitchen yet. Like it'll come. Yeah. So what are you seeing? If, if you're looking at the things that people are doing, entrepreneurs are doing, and you're going, man, they, I wish they would do this. They keep working on X and they need to be focused on Y. What, what is that? I'll give you what I call the secret formula. And it's F times F times E equals success. The first F is focus. How focused are you? How focused Mm -hmm. is your team? How focused is your strategy? So let's say that you decide to give yourself a percentage rating of somewhere between one and a hundred percent focused for the month, for the month or the quarter or the week. It focused on your, on your right psychodemographic profile. Are Mm -hmm. we focused on the plan? Am I making up focusing on my goals or am I getting distracted with social media? Am I getting distracted with what I just read in some random book? Am I getting distracted by, you know, the news So you give yourself a percentage rating on focus. The second F is faith. And it's how much faith do you have in yourself, your team, your marketing, your strategy, your product, your business, your coach, et cetera. And you have to protect your confidence. You have to protect your team's confidence so that we're going like, it's almost like in the, in the military where they go, hell yeah. And they just start running forward. Like you can't have any, any wavering or you die. Yeah. So so you give yourself a percentage score there on faith. How much faith between one and a hundred percent on faith. And then the E is effort. And it's how much effort are you putting in? Like, are you really working? You know, is it, and it's effort isn't the number of hours, but mm-hmm. it's that flywheel approach to really, really putting the effort into the things that matter that are going to create momentum and giving yourself or your company a rating on effort. Well, let's say you came up with 50% focused times 50% faith times 50% effort. 
That mm-hmm. only yields a 12.5% chance of success. If you go 0.5 times 0.5 times 0.5 is 12.5% chance of success. Those are shitty odds. Yeah. Even if you get to 80% focus times 80% faith times 80% effort, that's a 51.2% chance of success. That's 50, 50. You mm-hmm. might as well take all your cash and go to Vegas and put it on red or black. Right. So to most people go like, Oh, I'm doing well. I'm 90% focus times 90% faith times 90% effort. That's a 72.8% chance of success. Mm-hmm. A 25% chance of blowing up. The reason we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK was we were obsessively focused. We had met, we turned the company into a cult. So the faith was super high. Mm-hmm. We were cranking everybody. We were about 98%. If we, if you're 98% focused times 98% faith times 98% effort, that's a 94% chance of success. That's where most entrepreneurs go off the rails is they're missing on those three areas. Yeah. It's deceptively simple, isn't it? Well, business is simple. Like I have a, I have a set of rules called the grandmotherisms on, on a book that I'm working on right now, but it's like everything grandmother told us is true. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, treat people how you want to be treated. You know, like every, every rule is simple. Yeah. Yeah. Entrepreneurs are like a fly. They're all trying to get out the window and they're going to work harder until they get out. But there's a door. It's open. Just turn and go out the door. Good analogy. Fucking simple. It's so true. These flies right here, they're dead. And I every day. These are entrepreneurs with great ideas that didn't execute effectively. I don't know what you're doing there. So, you know what? Um, Let me ask you this What are you seeing out there that's total bullshit? I'm a little frustrated for people with the amount of, of content out there and the amount of random learning people are doing without applying it as well. Mm. I have a, a good friend of mine. I won't say his name who tells you to read a book a week. And I'm like, I disagree. I vehemently disagree. Mm-hmm. Because you have no time to put all those ideas in place. Mm-hmm. So a, it's taking up your time. It's taking your six hours to listen to it or read it. B, you don't have time to put it all in place. C, when you read all those cool things, it then adds more stress to your life because you're worried you're not doing all those things. D, most of that learning isn't even attached to what you want to be learning about. So what you want to do is learn about what you're working on this quarter. So think about your quarter's goals. Think about your projects. And then listen to podcasts, read books, go to masterminds about those things. That at least focuses your learning. But just reading more business books for the sake of reading business books Unless you're a kid really wanting to just expand your universe, I think is a, a, a very big waste of time for most entrepreneurs. I think a good way to flip that is instead of read a book a week, apply a book a month. Yeah. Simple and switch. I, yeah. Like I, I've had people like, oh, I've seen you speak three times. Your stuff is so great. I'm like, do you have a vivid vision? No, not yet. I'm like, <laughs> like stop what are blocking you doing? my stuff. Yeah. Like, what yeah. Are you, wow, you got so lucky. No, we had a 2000. 2003, 2006, and 2009 Vivid Vision that I was executing. Like, Mm. you didn't get lucky. We made that happen. Luck isn't any part of it. So, you know what? Let me, uh, thinking about our current environment right now, let's quickly touch on the current environment related to COVID, right? Related to what? what's going on right now. And I don't want to necessarily immerse ourselves in either the politics or the practices or anything like that. More around, which it's sad that I have to separate out politics, but that's for another conversation. More around, what are you telling the businesses that you work with on how best to navigate this season? So is it, hey, if there is some more space, you know, this is a time to change your systems or retrain your staff or launch a learning management system, change your CRM. Is it around that? Is it, hey, this is the time to push ahead because while others are kind of C game, you got to push ahead. 
what advice are you giving to businesses in this season? Well, it's, it's funny. I've actually been doing a lot of Zoom events recently. Groups are booking me to speak over Zoom on how to grow when it's slow. Mm-hmm. And it's all of the best systems that I use to navigate the 87, 88 recession, the 2000 um, stock market meltdown, mm-hmm. and the 2008 global financial crisis. I was running companies through all of those. Mm-hmm. I kind of packaged up the best systems to grow when it's slow or grow during an economic downturn or grow during uncertainty. That's so I'll, give you, I'll give you a few off the top. One is the speed of the leader, speed of the group. The leader has to decide where they're going because followers are dying to follow someone right now. Mm-hmm. It's a good plan violently executed now is better than the perfect plan next week, right? Did you just say violently executed? That's my that's favorite phrase. I love it. That's a general patent quote. Yeah, it's it's literally yes. like have a fucking plan and roll it out yes. and we'll follow you. That's we why. use it all the time. That's literally that. I just love that you said that because someone's like, can we get shirts to say violent execution? I'm like, yeah, I feel like it's going to have a different connotation. But anyways, yes, I love it. The next one is that if you think about an average, right? The, I had a client say, well, the average company in my space is going to is going to go down by 30% this year. And I said, average. that's cool. But I said, to be average, I said, you know, your income level is in the top 1% of all in the U.S. Your health mm-hmm. is in the top 1%. And mm-hmm. your business is in the top 5% of all businesses in your industry. You're already in the top five. Stop talking about so, average. So to be average, you could be down 70, down 50, down 30, up by 10 or up by 30. Where do you want to be to create the average? He goes, oh, we should be up by 30. We literally shifted the discussion. They were making plans to be down by 30, a $50 million company making plans to drop by 30%. Now they're making plans to be up by 30. I did a check-in with them yesterday. They're currently on trend for up 26% for the year. We've got two other acquisitions that we're working on that'll put us way over the top. So he's trying to buy a bunch of businesses right now that are slow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really focusing on your growth, deciding to be ahead of that curve, um, investing in marketing and sales right now, because no one else is. When everyone pulls back, mm-hmm. marketing is cheaper than it's ever been right now. Oh, yeah. so it's certainly cheaper than it's been in the last five years. So when mm-hmm. you can start buying it or renegotiating, just those kinds of things. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Um, and, and don't do the wait and see game. Um, well, and also like the reality is for most of us, a global crisis isn't, you're not, you're not general electric for God's sakes. You're not a global company. Mm-hmm. You know, you're selling in, in Dallas or you're selling in, you know, Kansas city or you're selling in Vancouver, like get off your ass and go tell people your product or service is good and they'll use you. Yeah. But stop reading social media and worried about all the worry. One thing you mentioned earlier um, uh, about the guy that you're sitting next to on the plane and being able to identify, I think it was bipolar and ADHD. Talk to me about how that's a superpower. You referenced it as your superpower and yeah. how common it is among C-suite. So first off, bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder has been nicknamed by the medical community as the CEO disease. So most entrepreneurial CEOs are on the spectrum for bipolar. In, um, in my book, Double Double, in chapter 12, I talk about the traits of bipolar disorder Mm-hmm. There's 11 core traits. And if you, if you end up with five of them, you're on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. If you end up with 10 or 11 of the traits, you're clinically diagnosed as bipolar. I have 10. Mm-hmm. I, wow. prob- I probably have 11, but I certainly have 10. So the mania is the energy of why people follow us, right? The manic depression of bipolar. Well, you don't find a lot of engineers and accountants and lawyers and teachers that are exciting. They're kind of, they're <laughs> kind of flat. Yeah. So when they, when they see these entrepreneurial kids, they think something's, he's too wired, he's too crazy, he's too energetic. Fuck, that's a leader. Mm-hmm. Everybody's mm-hmm. following him. He's distracting mm-hmm. people. So the mania is that high energy. The stress and depression is simply us burning out. Mm-hmm. 
right? And what happens to entrepreneurs, we can't tell our employees that we're scared. We can't tell our spouse that we've mortgaged the house to get the business to the next quarter. We can't Mm -hmm. tell our spouse that we're not taking payroll. We can't Mm -hmm. tell our employees that we don't know what we're doing. We're recruiting some amazing star from another company. Meanwhile, we're trying to figure out how to meet payroll the next Thursday. Yeah. That's a magnitude. And none of our friends understand what the fuck we're doing. Like, why is he always in business? Because you have a job and I don't. Like, the magnitude of stress that we're under really kind of exasperates the mania and the depression or stress. Yeah. So it's understanding how to ride that roller coaster because you can't get off of it. It's key. Yeah. Second second big entrepreneurial trait. So the mania is a superpower because we can get sales teams and marketing people and PR people to follow us and do what we want. We can get get them fired up too. Right. The next one is attention deficit disorder. Okay. The reason these are all told called disorders is because we're not like doctors. Doctors have labeled them a disorder because it's different from them. Sure. I've never found a doctor who's very inspiring. I've never found a doctor who's very energetic. I've never found a doctor who sees everything that's going on because they're so myopically focused on the one or two things. Mm-hmm. So what I have is more like an attention deficit strength. I see everything. I see what time it is. I see what's happening with the economy, the market, my suppliers, my customers. I kind of see the trends. I see the patterns. I notice the mistakes. And I and because I'm seeing everything, I can't focus on it for very long. So to mm-hmm. get it fixed, because it bugs me, because I'm seeing it, it bugs me. Sure. I have to delegate it quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, that causes growth. But the yeah. teachers don't want you to delegate stuff. They want you to do it all yourself. You can't do it all yourself to have a business. You can't scale it. What they see as a disorder is actually a superpower. And how do you help people recognize that, both in themselves and in their kids? Well, the first one I try to get them to do is to recognize they have the traits and it's okay. And if they see, oh, shoot, you mean like Richard Branson and Steve Jobs and Henry Ford and and two of the founders of Netscape are bipolar uh-huh, and have ADD? Uh-huh. Oh, so Ted Turner, uh-huh. So maybe they're not disasters. Uh-uh. Like, would you have ever wanted Steve Jobs not to be hypomanic? Yeah. He yeah. never really created it, right? Yeah. And he had to be, like, so driving and so stubborn to get through all the adversity. Mm-hmm. The teachers would be like, no, you should stop now because there's a right. There is no right. There's no box. Mm-hmm. We're about get out of the box. We're fine. There's, I don't even, I haven't found the box yet. <laughs> That's all, that also speaks to your peer group and how important it is to get, be around the right kinds of people because everyone will be looking at you. And this is a conversation we have in the mastermind a lot is that if you're a business owner, for God's sakes, hang out with other business owners because a W-2 in the U.S., they're not going to understand the way your brain works. I, I talk about business all the time. Why I love business. I eat, breathe, and sleep business. I love other things too, but I love business. And so if I'm sitting at a party where I'm sitting next to a, a good friend who's an accountant. You're mentioning accountants. And the next is a vet. And the next one's a pharmacist. My friend who's a veterinarian, he makes a mistake all the time. I go, how's business? And I go, I let him go two questions deep. And then I just unleash because, oh, it's good. He's like, oh, anything new happening? And then I just turn, well, Andy, let me tell you about it. And I just start going off on because I'm pumped and I'm fired up about business. I need to be around other business owners because they get how your brain works. Well, and let me qualify that. We need to be around the other business owners that are positive, hmm. that are the top 5% that are investing in their own growth, that are investing in their businesses, because there's a lot of business owners out there that are on the bottom half of that average. Sure. I just want to commiserate. They're negative. Right. Misery loves company, right? Yeah. yeah, so yeah. They, they don't want to grow. They're worried. They're panicked. They're, they're negative. 
dude, I'll tell you, like in like in the 2008, 2009 global financial crisis, there's a lot of companies that made a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of companies that did poorly. So no, I don't really want to just be around other business owners. I want to be around other heart-centered business owners, other fun business owners, other positive business owners, others that are growing and that are investing in their growth. Mm-hmm. So I tend to follow the, the ones that are that energy. Yeah, that makes complete sense. It's like going to a bar. Like, I don't want to hang out with the, the angry drunk at the bar. I yeah. want to hang out with the people that are fun and having a good time at the bar. For sure. Right. For but they're, sure. all, they're all there. you got to pick which group you're going to spend time with. And it takes a lot of planning. I, I really want to emphasize that for the listeners, because most of us spend time with the people we live next to, the people we work next to. That does not you're not designing an exceptional life when you do that, because those are those are friends by default. That's a social circle by default. You have to seek those out. So one thing we talk about here is a future friends list. As cliche as that sounds, you sh- we should all have a future friends list of people that we want in our circle. Um, you got to design that. I'm laughing because I have a I have a number of lists, and my list I have I have my friends in Phoenix dinner party list, my tennis yeah. playing list, my skiing <laughs> list. I, 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 because I forget, I'll be like I'm sitting around one day, I'll be like. Oh, I wish I could go skiing. I'm like, oh, wait, I got to list a whole bunch of people I know that ski. Oh, I should ping so-and-so because I forget. Same thing. I got a mountain biker's list. So Cameron, I see why Ryan and I said we need to meet because he's like, you got to meet Cameron. But I'm looking at mine right now and I've got a list of for the same reason. So whether that's business owners, whether that's I love mountain biking, I've got a list of people that it's like if I want to go do a trail, if I want to go up to Tahoe and bike, there's my list of people. Um, Or, you know, if you're doing a new workout program, oh, I've got a friend that is an amazing power lifter. How about I spend some time with her? That'll fire me up. I love it. I love it. One thing I want to go back to is you're talking about, hey, I went through these hard times, these economic downturns. And that is so important because a lot of people can't speak to that. That's why you want a mentor who's been there through stuff versus a coach who's going to ask you a bunch of questions and give you a bunch of advice based on nothing. It's a really dangerous time to be taking advice. And I also don't give advice. I give experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, like an experience what my experience was kind of the Gestalt protocol mm-hmm. so that people can learn from my experiences and take with it what they want versus mm-hmm. telling them what I think they should do. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You usually get much better results in that regard. But I think that that um, it's so important to listen to the people that have been through these economic downturns, through these hard times. I'm thinking about one of the guys I um, interviewed was a client of mine, Al Klein, and he runs an appraisal business and has for 30 years. And listening to his perspective of, you know, it's very successful. He's grown it a lot. And he's like, look, we're still growing. Real estate's still going to go ahead. And this is very early on where a lot of people are like, do we continue to buy? Do we buy in residential? Do we buy in commercial? Everything should just come to a screeching halt. Now Al's going, no, it doesn't. I've been here. I We've been through this many, many times. And just hearing his perspective was so good. I heard so many responses from listeners saying, we need to hear more Al's right now because they've, they've been like, they've cut their teeth on times like this. They've navigated teams and businesses through times like this. And we yep. get to the other side, guys. I know it's scary, but we get to the other side. And this may not even be the worst of what so many people have seen. And those people really need a microphone right now. We need to hear from those people. Yeah, I agreed. I heard this saying years ago. I think it was Jack Daly who said it. If any of anyone listening right now running a business of, you know, five million or greater or three million or greater, let's say you've got like 10 employees or more. If you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. And think about that for a second. If you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. 
Mm. The amount of things that are on your plate that somebody could do for a fraction of what you make, sure. you've got to get all that busy work off your plate. So the current one that I'm delegating to my EA, who's been with me for four and a half years, she's my fifth EA over 20 years, um, is email. She's mm-hmm. going to start triaging my entire inbox, mm-hmm. a system that I talk about, Inbox Zero, and how to manage it. But I don't need to be the one going through my inbox, deciding who to reply to, because she can handle half of them, deciding mm-hmm. which ones to unsubscribe to. She knows those. Deciding who to delegate stuff to, she can figure that out too. There's only probably 10% of my emails do I even need to think about. Mm-hmm. And then she can let me which ones I need to think about today and which ones I can look at Thursday or Friday. Mm-hmm. So the, the yeah. amount of stuff, like I don't even check myself in for flights, let alone, I don't, sir, I haven't booked travel for years, but. My boarding card just comes to my phone six hours or 12 hours before my flight because she checks me in. She handles all of that. Yeah, that saves the three hours, the four hours, a bit, or three, three or four minutes. But all of those things are huge. Yeah, I think that's so important. I love that line about if you don't have an EA, you are one. And it's, and it's critical. It's so critical. A lot of times, one thing that we've talked about on the podcast before is people always say, well, I can do that myself. And I always say, no, no, no. You don't ask, can I do it? You're resourceful. You can do just about anything. Should I do that? That's you, the, that's you, the you, can clean your own, you can clean your own toilets and wash your own floors too, but you don't. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, one thing uh, I, I was thinking about earlier is um, this is kind of in, in a different direction. So less about business owner, but just in the um, positioning yourself and your business well in the marketplace. I noticed that you have a really strong personal brand. Did you, has it always been that way? Did you purposely design your personal brand? And did you do it yourself? Did you hire a company? Talk to us about personal brand. A few, a few parts. Um, so when I was at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we were in about our second year of building the company and Brian wouldn't give equity to anyone. I realized that my biggest equity play that I could build there was everyone knowing that mm-hmm. I built the company, right? Mm-hmm. It, couldn't, it couldn't be Brian by himself. It needed to be Brian and Cameron. And there was more people on the team, but I needed people to know what I did. Yeah. I I wanted to do PR. I wanted to speak to the press. I wanted to do media interviews. I wanted to do speaking events. So it was a very cognizant design of me building my brand attached to it and attached to the other three companies that I built. And your role in that role that you, you were a COO in that position, right? Okay. Yeah, I was Which doesn't always have a personal brand unless you yeah, intentionally well, grow. No, in most cases it doesn't. In fact, mm-hmm. that's why I started the second in command podcast. I've heard all the EO, the CEO stories. I want to interview their COO. Sure. Right. I want to hear the rest. So we've got the CEO, COO of Shopify, the COO of Bumble. We always hear from their wow. CEO, but we don't hear their story. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so my personal brand was starting to get built then by design because I knew when I left, it would, it would transition the amount of value I could, could charge for. Mm-hmm. And then when I started coaching CEOs and entrepreneurs, speaking all over the world and being paid to speak all over the world has really brought my brand up. Mm-hmm. So I needed a website and then my clients wanted a book. So I wrote Double Double and it took off and was really successful. So I wrote four others. So all of those things were by design. And then, yes, mm-hmm. I did pay a company uh, who, if anybody wants, if they look at the CameronHerald.com, if you like that website, I can introduce you to the group that did it for me. It's called Influx. They're amazing to work with. They definitely did a really, really good job at, at really understanding who I was and, and how to communicate that to connect with my clients. So we were just talking about your role in the COO. Let's clarify exactly what that is, um, what the role is, and 
Also, at what size, if, if it's a size standard, at what point does someone need to consider bringing on a COO if they don't already have one? So, so I think it was about 17 years ago, Harvard wrote an article called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. Mm, okay. And they identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers. So you have kind of the heir apparent, or you have the MVP, or you have the change agent, or you have the most valuable, or you have the partner. It's very different. So at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, as an example, I came in as really the one who knew how to franchise a company. Okay. So I, was, I really had the domain expertise of franchising. So Brian had no idea how to do any of it. Now mm-hmm. he does, but back then... He would and he would publicly say, he's like, I had no idea how to do anything Cameron wanted to do. So that was the partner was he got to do the stuff that that he needed to do. And I got to do what he didn't know how to do. It was Mm -hmm. a partnership. Um, In other cases, you've got kind of the technical founder. Right. Or you might have someone to oversee, you know, finance because you suck at finance. So it's really the yin and yang with the CEO. It's the person who can do everything the CEO doesn't want to do and sucks at. Mm -hmm really, really high trust and relationship. That's the best way to describe what a COO is. Okay. Now, a COO is just a, the biggest title for the second in command role because it could be a general manager. It could be an operations manager. Mm-hmm. It could be a VP of operations, right? So let's say that you're a 10-person company. You shouldn't have any CEO, C-level titles. You shouldn't have a chief marketing officer. You shouldn't have a chief financial officer. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have a chief technology officer. God forbid you have a chief revenue officer, which is now the C-level title for the head of sales. Um, yeah. And I got to point out, most smaller companies do that. They overtitle to compensate for lesser salaries. So I just well, got to point that well, out. Here, here's what happens. They put a big title in to compensate for lesser salaries, but then everybody wants more and they show all the demand. So you end up paying more than you should. Sure. Second thing is you end up creating like creep where they think that they're more valuable. They are, they think you're supposed to be good for than they are. And third, there's nowhere for them to grow to. So mm-hmm. I don't even like giving out VP. T- if I'm a 10 person company, everybody gets director titles or manager titles mm-hmm. at the hundred person mark. We can give out VP titles mm-hmm. at the 300 person mark. You can give out the C level titles. That's, that's really good because Again, I want to point out that's not what most people do with small companies. Well, and so, and then they end up on salary.com saying, well, hey, C- CMO is supposed to be making XYZ. And to your point, then they want so more money. Baby boomers have really, really wanted to be liked by their kids. And they really want to be liked by their employees. And the baby boomers in Gen X, so the oldest baby boomer is currently 73 and the, or 74. And then the youngest baby boomer is 56. So that group is starving to be liked. And, and we're also worried about getting kicked out of our companies. So we really want, so we'll give away whatever we want. We've learned, we've mm-hmm. forgotten how to say no. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you want six cookies before dinner? Yes. As long as you love me, mm-hmm. like you need a BMW. Okay. Have that. Sure. So then, then Gen Y has gotten very, very good at asking for stuff, even equity, like 20 years ago to get equity in a company, you had to buy it on the stock market yep. But from, from 97 to 2000. Companies gave away equity in lieu of compensation because we didn't have all the investment dollars in the dot-com. They attracted a whole bunch of good talent for equity. And then when the market blew up in March of 2000 through October, all of a sudden employees needed to get paid as well because equity wasn't worth anything. But they still wanted equity too. So then we started giving them salaries and equity. And now what's happened over the last 17 years, we're giving salaries, equity, and titles to a very entitled group of people that often don't have the experience to wipe their ass. Hmm but they have the confidence 
that that have somehow sold us on, oh, they're really confident. I'll give them a VP title. Yeah, but they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They haven't done yeah. it. Yeah. It's really dangerous and expensive. Sure. So that was, uh, I love how you broke it down. 10 person director level. You know, you have to be at this level to get the VP level, um, this many employees. I think that's I a see, really good I guideline. Transition, I see transition points at the ones and threes. From one employee to three employees to 10 to 30 to 100 to 300. Or a hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, a million, three million, ten million, thirty million, hundred million mm-hmm. tend to be natural inflection points on the mm-hmm. kind of maturity of a business and the evolution of a business and the complexity of the business. One thing about being an entrepreneur that I, one question I love to ask is, um, we talked a little bit about this, I think, before we came on, which is, what does being an entrepreneur? allow you to do so a lot of times people talk about the struggle but um there's much more than struggle and if you design it well there's much more than struggle what do you get to do i take eight to ten weeks vacation every year i haven't worked i haven't worked a weekend in 10 years i don't work nights i shut down at five o'clock because i'm never going to get it all done and i can delegate it so Mm -hmm. it gives me my free time it gives me control of my time if i want to take off time in the middle of the day to go hang out with people or golf i just do I just tell my, like, I don't have to ask, which there's a lot of power and, and um, fun in that. I mean, you get to write off a lot of stuff through the business. So you get additional sure. write-offs and expenses. It gives you control of your own destiny. Yeah. Like, you get to decide. No one delegates to you. Yeah. Yeah. Karen, have you always had this good of balance or uh, did you have well, to teach yourself that? I had to burn out twice to get it. So. <laughs> I'm not kidding. 20 years ago, next month, I was written up in the Wall Street Journal as one of four supernovas whose careers went really, really high during the dot-com and crashed. Um, I burned out with stress. I weighed, I can show you a a picture. I weighed uh, 39 pounds heavier than I do right now, 20 years ago. Yeah, I was drinking. I wasn't getting any exercise. I was eating like shit. Different human being. Uh, But I thought I was successful, but I was in complete burnout. So... And then the other one was my kids. One one time, one of my kids kind of went like, I had my phone up and I was talking to him and he, he went like this, moved my phone away. Like he wanted attention. Those little things were the ones that re- made me realize like, and then my mom dying, there's, there's been a, sim- a number of things, right? You just realize like none of this matters. This is just what we do to make money. Mm-hmm. Those sound like pivot points. Cameron. Yeah, big time. Yeah. I just recognize it because when it comes to balance, that's something that's not inherent in entrepreneurs. Um, the hustle is, is tend to be inherent and the hustle is celebrated, right? Well, and what you're talking about is something very different and much more balanced. It is. And that is where a coach or a mentor can shake them a little bit or crisis can shake them a little bit. But the sad thing is like, no one actually wants to hear about your work either. Like if I'm at a cocktail party Nobody wants to hear about my coaching or my speaking or my books or the CO Alliance. And I don't want to hear about their accounting practice or their teaching. I don't mm-hmm. give a shit. What, we, what I want to hear about is what are your passions? Where did you go mountain biking? Hey, I just tried mountain biking downhill for the first time at Park City. I was scared. It was fun. Like you want to mm-hmm. talk to me about that more than you want sure. to talk to me about who I coached. Yeah. So if that's all we have as our, and, and do you really want your child when you're dying or when the when you, if somebody said to your kid, "What's your dad do?" or "What's your mom do?" and your kid described work, that's mm. horrible. I would love my kids if somebody said, "What's your dad do?" I'd like my kids to say, "He golfs, he plays tennis, he hikes, he hangs out with friends, he cooks dinners, he drinks wine." Oh, what does he do to make money? 
Oh, he, he does speaking and books and, but yeah, he's all about golf and teach like. Wow. That's a big shift from what most people are doing. Most people aren't in design of their lives. They're waking up and then they're going to die. It's sad. I'm responding to triggers. I'm also very, very European in my mindset. You know, last year I went to 14 countries. Um, just as part of my normal travel and vacation time, I went to 14 countries last year. Yeah. When you look at the North Americans, North Americans are all waking up and working, waking up and working. Europeans wake up and live. And then they, sure. they fit work into that a little bit, but they live, they work to live. They don't live to work. For sure. It's a big difference. Yeah. So I think that's, that's been a big part of it for me as well. So let me ask you this best movie of all time. What do we got? Uh, Sound of music as always. Yeah, I know. I'm a Didn't guy. See that comment. We did say the European thing. So maybe no, I guess. I've always loved the music. I've always loved the story. I've always loved the, I've always loved it. I really like Moulin Rouge as well. Cause I think the artistry and the costumes and the songs and the story yeah. are amazing in that, but no, it's definitely sound of music. I'll be darned. Did not see that one coming. All right. All right. So what's next for you? What's next on the docket for Cameron? So building the CO Alliance for sure. That's the thing. Okay. Working on an online component of it right now. An online model for the CO Alliance is a big one. But really, life. My uh, my youngest son goes away to university in 13 months. My oldest wow. son is there now, so I'm I'm actually preparing to start living globally. I'll probably tax base out of either Estonia or Portugal. I'm Canadian, so I don't have the U.S. all over my worldwide income. Sure. So I'll, I'll go to a tax zone where I can have 10% total total tax. Um, I have about mm-hmm. 30 countries that I want to live one to three months per city in. Mm-hmm. So I have a list of all these cities where I'm just going to start hopping around for about do do that for about five years mm-hmm. and figure out after that what I want to do. Where you settle after that. I love it. Or, or if I settle. I'm not sure that I really want to settle. I think I actually want to live globally and just decouple from stuff, but really kind of attach to experiences. Like I want to go live in these cities you know, bars, I'll bring up Barcelona or Amsterdam. I love Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. I want to live in Amsterdam, but I want to know the coffee shops. I want to know the cafes. I want to walk into the restaurant and have them call me by name. I want to know the winding streets around the, the canal areas and know exactly where I'm turning in the Jordan. And I want to know the other neighborhoods. And, and I want to be so familiar that I go, I know the city. Mm-hmm. And then after three months, I want to pack up. I want to go do it in Barcelona. And then I want to go do it in Prague. And then I want to go do it in, you know, like I really want to live. I want to go live in Chamonix. I want to go live in Kitzbühel. I want to go live in these places. Will you write about them? Will that be part of this or just experience them? I'll definitely speak in all of them because I can, (laughs) I'm lucky that I've got these networks with EO and YPO globally that I can pretty much guarantee myself a speaking event in every city that I live in, Mm -hmm. which, which really, if I do it right, can pay for the entire journey. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really want to slow down, you know, the other parts of my businesses as well. A lot more passive income. This is just for selfish purposes because I'm a big traveler myself. And I struggle every time people ask that question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyhow. Favorite place? It's okay to pick a couple. Thailand. Uh, spent seven weeks there and it blew, and a long time ago and it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Love people, love the, um, the water, love the food, love the view. The sunsets. Yeah, just fucking spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, and then New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was probably because it's so similar to British Columbia and I hadn't lived in BC yet, mm-hmm. but New Zealand, like I moved to British Columbia two years after going to New Zealand, I spent a month in New Zealand 
Um, North Island or South Island? I spent three weeks on the South Island and doing some hiking and then a week on the North Island. Love it all. Franz Joseph Glacier? I did Franz Joseph yeah. Glacier. I did the Abelte, Abel, or Abel Tasman hike, and I did the root burn hike. Mm, like beautiful. Ones. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. And then if it was cities, Amsterdam, Barcelona, mm-hmm. um, I, would say, I would say Barcelona, Amsterdam would be like the holy shits. And, but then I really want to, I want to, I really want to explore Italy a lot more. And mm-hmm. I really want to, oh, and I'll give you an island, last one. In Greece, I met all these wealthy, not wealthy, I met all these business owners in Greece and I asked them where their summer homes were. Mm -hmm. This was was 30 years ago. And they told me their summer homes were on a little island in the Baxacladics called Kofenicia. It was near Morgos, it was near Eos, it was near Santorini, like in and around that region. It was like four to five hour boat from from those ones. But it's called Kofenicia. It was like K-O-F-E-N-N-I-S-I-A or something like that. When I got there, there were three trucks and a motorbike on the island. It took four, about four hours to walk around the entire island. There were only four or five restaurants. And I went back to it 25 years later, and there were only 30 trucks on the island and about 20 motorbikes. But it's where the Greeks have their vacation homes. That's where you go. That sounds amazing. Like, why go to Mykonos or Santorini where it's touristy? Like, go where mm-hmm. the... Go where the locals go on vacation. For sure. I've never heard of it. That sounds beautiful. Well, and what's interesting is every country has those, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why, sure. go to, like, why go to Lake Tahoe where you live? Where do people in Lake Tahoe go for their vacation? Yep. That's yep. where you can go. Where I just, I, the same place I just was a couple of weeks ago. Right. Don't exactly say it. That. No, you not. Want to, you don't want to give up that little lake area, right? It's our secret spot. Yeah, we didn't yeah. say it specifically for that. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. My husband's actually from Madrid, so we've spent a lot of time in Spain too. I mean, all over, but love the south of Spain. I love Madrid. It's a great city. It's a very underrated city. I really like the whole. I did a crazy pub crawl there. Jesus, about thirteen hours. Me and this Australian guy. I was like forty-five. We ended up at a rave and getting kicked out of a rave at three in the morning. Madrid's a great city. I love that you did this at forty-five. I love that you added the age. I love that. I might have been 44, but you're 43, but I was, I was too old to know better. I was on a, a, this white couch that had wheels on it and, and I was surfing and he was pushing me through this rave and they, they finally kicked us both out and um, it was, yeah, it was fun. Oh, I love it. I love it. Were you actually holding glow sticks? Did you have them like around your neck? Like well, where, been, I, had started, glow sticks. I started going to Burning Man in 2007. So I would, yeah. have been, I would have been, whatever I could have grabbed when I was there, I was, where there we go. Yeah. It's a great place. They it's canceled obviously this year, unfortunately. I know. I have my tickets. Hopefully next year. Yeah. Hopefully next year. Uh, so been? real quick, where do people go to connect with you, Cameron? When they want a whole lot more, where do they go? So the second in command podcast, for sure, they should all download, listen to, subscribe okay. to, et cetera. Um, all, all of my books, my five books are on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. They should check those out. For this audience, I would suggest checking out Double Double. Okay. The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. and free PR. Those would probably be the top three books for this audience. And then, you know, my CameronHerald.com website uh, has all the rest of the information and the COO Alliance website as well. Perfect. Okay. We'll link it in the show notes and in social and sure. so they know exactly where to go. So Cameron, thanks for this. This is awesome. I'm so glad we connected. I'm so glad Ryan um, unofficially connected us. And I feel like this is not going to be our last conversation. No, for sure. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks, April. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.